right, welcome back to another episode of Finding Peaks. Excited to have friend Clint Jason back joining us for, what are we on now, our third or fourth episode? Yeah, yeah. it's always a pleasure. So your friend Clinton yeah. and then Jason. And yeah. then Jason, yeah. Got it. Kind of a friend. I think that checks out, so. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Thanks right. for having us. Thanks Absolutely. For having yeah, us. Good to have you guys back. Thanks for the coffee. Yeah. We're trying to humor it up a little bit based on some reviews that we were a little too serious in the first yeah. few episodes. So. <clears throat> so that's the socks. Get the socks. There we go. All right. Whimsical. Not comedians. <laughs> Counselors. Host. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the clarification. All right. Yeah. Diving into this today. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that came to mind over the past week and just thinking about you know, kind of what we do each and every day is putting a little bit of focus uh, back on the families. Uh, oftentimes when I'm talking to families, and certainly I'm sure it's the case when you guys are as well too, that um, they uh, often describe situations, you know, about their loved one going into treatment and so forth as if they could have done better as parents. Uh, if I had just done things a little bit differently, um, things could have been better. You know, I didn't have the playbook to parenthood, you know, that sort of stuff. And, um, with that, I think before we you know, dive fully into the topic, you know, let's introduce what shame is from a therapeutic lens. Um, yeah. Define it, go. Go, all right, so shame, typically the best way to probably just talk about it is the difference between guilt and shame and sort of there's a, a subtle difference there. So guilt would be defined as the idea that I did something bad, right? It's identifying that I, I as an individual um, had did a, a behavior that I could perceive as bad versus shame is the t basically internalizing guilt and saying that because I did something bad, I am bad, right? So guilt, I did something bad, shame, I am bad. So that would be the, probably the best way to differentiate it, unless Jason has years of experience on me, so given his age and everything, so. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Years and years, yeah. decades, really. Yeah. Um, I. The only thing I would add to what you said is guilt's a pretty important emotion that we feel because like it, yeah. it's helpful. It's like a corrective. Yeah. It says you've done something outside of your values and stop doing it. Shame, on the other hand, usually leads to an ongoing narrative and self-fulfilling prophecy uh, and a spiral down, yeah. I would say. so. Absolutely. That's what I'd add. Yeah, grief motivates growth and shame uh, is a barrier to growth. Yeah. There you go. Gotcha, absolutely. So when a family then, and so you're, you're talking to them and they're describing the situation as um, not in the sense that they did the bad thing, but that they are experiencing that I am a bad family member, that I sort of caused what's happening to you know, my loved one who's in care right now. What, do we, what would you say to that family member in that moment? I've had some of those conversations, uh, not surprisingly. Certainly what I, what I have said, honestly, is... Um, particularly when people are first coming into treatment, like I, I recognize that they're, I'll say to them, I recognize you're feeling that way. And really now is not the time to like stop and like reflect on your entire parenting history because really we're in this crisis and, and now you've done the right thing by reaching out and calling us and I'm grateful that you did that. And likely you got here as soon as you could, so we're glad you're here. And that's usually how I start that call. Just. Just trying to say, listen, I think everybody's probably doing the best they can and making the best decisions they can. And it, it can be hard to make a phone call about a loved one, um, particularly who's struggling with uh, addiction or other mental health things. Uh, oftentimes, from the best and most genuine intent, parents try to solve 
uh, their, their loved ones' problems on their own, or so do spouses, uh, all through genuine intent. And so I work really hard not to pile on shame at all. People tend to walk around with plenty of it all the time anyway. And so really just normalizing that experience that kind of you got here as quick as you could. Yeah, yeah I think um, also to really... Ex- you know, when I hear families really express this amount of shame, it, to me, it kind of speaks to the idea that addiction is somehow based in morality or lack thereof. So being able to inform families what addiction really is and where it comes from, that it isn't a lack of um, morality or anything that could have been necessarily, that you could have done differently, um, or is it in somehow a reflection of, of who you are as a parent or who you are as a spouse, but, um, you know, giving them the education on addiction being really a, a biopsychosocial disease that is um, motivated by so many factors that just that trying to identify that one specific thing or to own that behavior of your family member is just, um, it, it really doesn't serve them or serve the family. So. And for, and, and, and in my conversations with families, it's the, there's a, a rooted tension in there that I sort of, want to bring forward here, it, you know, it sounds like when the addict is behaving in the way that they do to seek their drugs and alcohol and all the behaviors that fall out from that, the lying, the stealing, mm-hmm. all the potential of it, oftentimes families are in a position to point at all of that sort of negatively because it is, as you said, outside of a value system. Maybe it's the family's values, maybe it's at the individual level, but that constant sort of pointing and that negativity and that experience on, you know, on, the, on the addiction side, the, the individual who is addicted at that time probably starts to really start seeing it not as guilt but shame, like I'm just a terrible person. Only a terrible person could hear all this negativity with such fluency, and so they start to point back at the family. You're the problem. You didn't do that for me. This is why I act and behave. And, and so how do we start to you know, dissolve that tension? Because it's neither person should be experiencing shame, but shame is resulting from it. And I, and I guess what I'm really getting at here is just how do we dissolve that tension that existing? How do we stop the finger pointing at the family members so that we can appreciate that, hey, nobody had a playbook to do this right. Nobody had a playbook for how to do addiction right. And nobody had a playbook for how to be a parent or to be the best possible parent that would uh, create a situation in which it didn't lead to addiction. So. Um, I think it's important to uh, dissolve that experience and remove it um, because it seems to be a fighting match by the time they arrive at our doorstep. Yeah, fair. And I'll just continue to reference Brene Brown. Well, which is good because she's a shame expert, it turns out. And, and certainly what, what Brene Brown says is that the, the solution for shame is empathy. And, and that's kind of what it requires on a variety of, on multiple layers of what you just described. Like a loved one needs empathy for their family. The family requires some empathy for their loved one. But a lot of times the, the empathy starts with the, with the relationship with uh, clinicians and other staff and other clients. Just um, really being able to sit in the dark with another person. Just sit with them in, a, in the spot where they are struggling and usually that helps resolve some of the empathy and really can can help a person distinguish between their guilt and uh the shame yeah it's a big question so um i guess my approach would be something um you know when families have that tension there's 
you know, that finger pointing is serving some sort of purpose within the family, right? Like it actually is serving a function. And typically it's um, to some degree part of, it's holding that family up and becoming part of that family's identity. So being able to sort of, I, one, highlight the fact that, hey, by the way, there's finger pointing going on and that's, that's not serving anybody, but also what is that finger pointing actually doing for you guys as a family? How is it serving you or, or helping your family function, even though in, or dysfunction, basically? So I guess that would be um, my approach. And then I think building empathy into that. Um, and, you know, families are such a complex organism. And, I mean, there's, it's certainly not a specialty of mine, but um, I think... Being able to unpack that and unwind that just takes a tremendous amount of time. And um, being able to give families even that information that, hey, this is going to be a process. And as one person changes in the family, everybody else in the family is going to have to change as well. Like to, to say that just the, I'm sending my kid off and so change them and make them better, that's actually not how it works. Like they're going to go and start their work and process of change. And as they come back, everybody's going to also have to change around them to to reestablish some sort of homeostasis. So. so let's say that I've experienced trauma in my family or discomfort surrounding my family, and in some way that discomfort led to me wanting to numb that a bit with drugs and alcohol or whatever the situation might be. How do we guide the person in treatment, or, or what can we tell families about that guidance that because I, I, what we don't want at the end of the day is some excusatory lens, right, for stating, well, I was traumatized, or mom didn't do the right thing, or you know, brother did X, Y, and Z, and that's why I do drugs and alcohol. How do we get away from seeing the tension for what it is and then move away from it to the degree that we stop excusing bad behaviors, or poor behaviors is probably a better word there, um, in relationship to that? that makes sense? I can restate that a bit. Well, so it sounds like excusing and justifying at the same time. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes people get into addiction treatment centers and they're not fully aware of what is trauma and they're not fully aware of how they were shamed and they're not fully aware of what discomfort they're carrying. And then, you know, we'll sit in a, in a group individual session, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that happened in my life. And then it sort of has a, um, an energy to it where they turn and say, your right. fault, you know, right. sort of as an experience. And... But even if somebody caused something to the individual that caused discomfort that led to the desire for numbingness, it can't continue forward in an excusatory sort of fashion. So how, how as clinicians do we help the individual see, okay, we've identified issues and problems, but we can't live in those problems and we can't change the past and mm -hmm. we can't use the past as a mechanism for excusing the behaviors that are outside of our value system currently. Yeah. I think in some ways, it, to me, in some ways, it comes down to um, boundaries. Like, I like to bring clients back around to boundaries because oftentimes when an individual has gone through a trauma or whatever, their boundaries are either really diffuse or really rigid in various places. And helping somebody understand how to set boundaries to protect themselves, it, which to me isn't the same as blame. Like, you know, if, if, if a family member has a loved one that is actively harming them or will likely lead them back out to drug use or uh, will affect their, their mental health, then that person, it doesn't matter the blame or attributing blame to it. It just matters setting up the healthy boundary and what, where that boundary needs to be um, in, order for, uh, the, in order to sustain the recovery process. 
and whatever that might look like. That, because that's what I look look at like that. Because I do think trauma distorts boundaries oftentimes for people. Wow. <clears throat> right, Clinton. Yeah, I think that you get again. We talk about this sort of like shame cycle, right? And that. Um, you know, on one hand, you have the, the person who's uh, struggling with addiction, pointing the finger at the family, saying, because, you were, because of my family was like this, or my experiences were like this, that I do this now. Mm -hmm. And then the family points and says, well, if you weren't doing what you're doing, then our family wouldn't be like this, right? So you get in sort of this, you get caught into this, um, uh, this, this sort of like th big thinking error where everybody starts to blame everyone. And being able to pull people apart from that and actually just sort of own the fact that, look, every, the, the system has been sick, you know, like we actually have a family that is ill. And within that, we have all developed um, habits that are part of this family disease. And being able to sort of go in then as, for, as individuals and start to work on their, on that kind of finding that cure, and then looping that family back together over time is, I'm, I think that that's, uh, it's a really simple way of explaining, it. again, a complex process. But in order to get out of that cycle of blame and justification, uh, you really have to pull things apart and then acknowledge that, look, we're all sick. You know? And it's not one person's fault. You know? But the way that we exist together is actually the sickness. So. Well, I think to, to add to what you're saying, too, I think oftentimes family members in our program are then looking to their family to heal the wounds, right? With that blame comes the, so then you need, with that blame comes the need for, let's say, an angry parent to acknowledge the pain they caused for the healing to occur. That's the drive inside of people. But, you know, what I focus on in therapy is that, like, whether or not, let's say, your angry father acknowledges the damage they caused, like, you get to heal from it. Mm -hmm. He's not your healer. You're your healer. And because I do think that that definitely happens, particularly in um, child-to-parent relationships, is the children often are looking to their parents for that healing or that affirmation or whatever. And and, and teaching clients again not to blame and not, but also not to try to get healing from from the source of the problem. Yeah, doesn't mean healing can't come in those areas, but the, they're not the healer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the <clears throat> it's it's a it's a challenge for families uh, going through this, and by the time they arrive at peaks, it's it's a fairly broken family system yeah. um, in general, especially those who've gone you know through the ringer. And I think um, just want to pass our love and appreciation to families um, who are all you know going through uh, addiction right now within their own family system, whether. Um, there's mental health association with it and so forth and just remind them that care is directional and that at the beginning of you know somebody coming into a program like ours um, it there's a, a tenacity to it and attention about it that is certainly our jobs you know at, at each and every day to resolve and support them on and um, just to know that you're loved at the end of the day um, and that we care for you collectively as much as we care for the individual who's in our program um, and um, on behalf of our team here at Peaks, uh, signing off, uh, I think, again, for our fourth episode here, mm -hmm. and uh, just ecstatic to be here and uh, appreciate the opportunity to continue to um, deliver this education and information, and hope you all enjoy it. Until next time. <laughs>